back when I was in seventh grade, just a couple years ago, I had one of those teachers who made learning really fun. You ever have one of those? And uh, her name was Miss Vile, Miss Dorothy Vile. And through her wonderful ability to tell fascinating stories, she made all of us want to learn, especially history. She just made it come alive. And after I was all grown up, I made a point of going back and visiting her to personally thank her for her investment in my life and for transferring her love of learning to me. And maybe there would be a teacher in your life who would be blessed uh, if you were to do that with them. I do remember that one assignment she gave us, and I remember it vividly, was to create a visual historical timeline of the 100 greatest events in history, events that that were history-changing and world-altering. Each day, she would introduce three or four of those to us, and while she was telling us about each one, we would all pull out our timelines and our colored magic markers and try to draw a picture to represent each of those events. And I was thinking about that this week, and I'm surprised by how many events I still recall to this very day because of that assignment. And I did recall that one of them had something to do with this man named Martin Luther. And I, was, I rummaged around in the garage, and I found that box up on a shelf marked Steve's memory box. You know, the, the one you get sent from your parents, you know, uh, 30 years ago or so. And, and looking through that, I found it. Yeah. Seriously, I found it. The assignment. Look at this thing. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous, isn't it? <laughs> Unbelievable. And I was like 40 years old, so it's very dusty, and I was sneezing the rest of the day. But I looked at it, and yeah, right there in the middle of it, oh, that was upside down, but you didn't see. It says, there's an event here, it says, Martin Luther divides the church, 1517. And my drawing there is of a little church building split in half, cut in half, divided, and um, I think it's interesting that Miss Vile put it that way. Martin Luther divides the church. So I can get this back in here. Because that wasn't really what Martin Luther had in mind. If you would have asked him, you know, dividing the church. Reform the church, yes. Clean up the church, sure. But separate from it and start something brand new, that was not really in Martin Luther's mind at all at the time. We're in the series, right? And really, this series that we're doing called Reformation Fire is, is quite a change of pace from our typical pattern here at New Life. Most of the time, when we come together, we unpack a passage of Scripture together or examine a topic from a biblical perspective. But because this year marks the 500th anniversary of that event that we call the Reformation, we felt led to do some exploring of this together, this medieval upheaval, as it were, which certainly did alter history. It was a movement that was ignited on that day in 1517 when Martin Luther went and posted his 95 theses, nailing it to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany. Ignited is is a fitting word, I think, for that event because that little spark would would burst into flames and then become a raging wildfire of reform that would sweep across Europe and eventually leap across the Atlantic Ocean and reach our shores. But of course, Luther had no idea that his little act of protest that day was going to lead to such a massive conflagration. He just wanted to be true to his conscience. Well, we knew that at least one of these sermons in this series was going to feel kind of like a college or university lecture, and guess which one that is? This one, here today. And so pull out your study notes, if you will, and I know we have our middle schoolers with us, and so I want to say this to middle schoolers. If you will take this out and take notes and fill in every blank and come up to me at the end of the sermon, show me your filled in blanks, and tell me something that you learned this morning that you're going to remember maybe for 40 years then you can have a donut on me in the cafe, one donut, okay, on me, maple twist, whatever, as long as your parents are okay with that, all right? I'm going to talk fast. I got a lot to give you this morning. Not yet, after the (laughs) service. 
There go the maple twists. They're going to be gone. <laughs> All right, here we go. Why study the Reformation? Let me suggest a few reasons. Number one, let's study the Reformation in order to avoid the errors of the past, right? You've heard this quote, those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. And so let's learn from others' mistakes in the past. Second, to acquire a deeper sense of rootedness in our faith. And I find that many people who walk with Christ want to have this sense that they belong to something ancient, that there's roots, that there's a heritage that goes back, that this thing called the church hasn't just been in existence for a few decades, but rather for centuries. And we're going to discover that on a new level. Third, to be dissuaded from what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is the notion that just because something is new, it's better. And that's not necessarily true, is it? Sometimes you have to go back, sometimes you have to do a little regressing in order to do some progressing. And that's what we're going to be doing. Number four, we need to study the Reformation to be challenged to go deeper in our devotion to Jesus Christ and to His truth. And we're going to encounter some individuals who were deeply devoted to Jesus, so much so that they ended up laying down their lives for their convictions regarding Him. Fifth, I think this will help us become educated regarding the distinctions between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And this church, New Life, flows in the stream of the Protestant tradition of faith, and that's been handed down to us from generations past. So we're going to look at some of the distinctions. Many of us have Roman Catholic friends or relatives, and this is going to help us, I hope, understand what the differences are. And then six, to gain an appreciation for the historical basis for certain modern Protestant church practices. I mean, just the fact that I'm standing up here uh, with a podium or a lectern or a pulpit preaching the Word of God, and that's kind of the centerpiece of our worship gatherings, you know where that came from? It came out of the Protestant Reformation and the return to preaching and proclaiming the Word of God to the people of God. And so we're going to discover more of those. Well, what exactly was the Reformation? Let me give you a sampling of definitions from a variety of sources and see if you can kind of pick up the recurring theme or the thread that runs through all of them. First, the Protestant Reformation was the 16th century religious, political, intellectual, and cultural upheaval that splintered Catholic Europe, setting in place the structures and beliefs that would define the continent, that's Europe, in the modern era. Here's another one. The Reformation, also referred to as the Protestant Reformation, was a schism from the Roman Catholic Church, initiated by Martin Luther and continued by John Calvin, Uldrich Zwingli, and other early Protestant reformers in 16th century Europe. Here's a third. The Protestant Reformation was a widespread theological revolt in Europe against the abuses and totalitarian control of the Roman Catholic Church. Reformation was the religious revolution that took place in the Western Church in the 16th century, having far-reaching political, economic, and social effects It became the basis for the founding of Protestantism. And then finally, the Protestant Reformation was a major 16th century European movement aimed initially at reforming the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. So we get the idea, right? These words, upheaval, schism, revolt, revolution, movement. This was big. And while at its core it was really a theological movement, it affected everything in Europe, socially, politically, vocationally, educationally, culturally. And listen, that's because of how much religion was woven all throughout the fabric of medieval life. To really understand the Reformation, you have to understand the landscape of medieval Europe at that time. And that's very hard for us to do because our world is so different, this postmodern world that we live in. Light years, it seems, from that era and that time. But think about this. Back then in Europe, there was only one church. And everybody went to it. There were not Baptists and Pentecostals. There were no Presbyterians and Methodists or Church of Christ people or Nazarenes or Apostolic churches. All those would come later. There was just the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Well, yeah, there was the Eastern Orthodox Church that had broken off from Rome in the 11th century, but they were kind of like the black sheep of the family. Other than them, all Christians were Catholic. And all Christians recognized Rome and the Pope as their parents as it were, the Pope, the Holy Father, and the Church, the Mother. And apart from these, there could be no salvation. 
Not only that, but in that era, the church and the state were kind of married. They were in bed together, although it wasn't always an amorous affair. Politics and religion were intertwined in those days in a strange and I think unhealthy relationship. And that had been the case since Constantine, the emperor, had elevated Christianity to the status of most favored religion in the Roman Empire a thousand years earlier. So now it was called the Holy Roman Empire. Get the idea? Kind of a smaller scale remake of the glory days. And the emperors and the kings and the popes knew each other, had influence on each other, and often covered for each other while at the same time trying to consolidate their own power. This Holy Roman Empire embodied what would often become referred to as Christendom. And you're familiar with that term, right? Christendom. Now, one interesting result of this merger of church and state was this. It became illegal for someone to say that they believed something that was contrary to the authorized teachings of the church. To do so was to be branded a heretic. That's right. And heresy was considered a crime against the state punishable by death. That's why when you read of the so-called heretics being burnt at the stake, if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, these were people who simply dared to believe something different than the official doctrines of the church. That's how things went down in the age of Christendom. Let's identify some of the distinctives, the distinctive beliefs and doctrines of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And of course, we would start with the Pope, right? The Pope, who was the head of the church, elected by the College of Cardinals in Rome, the Pope was believed to possess supreme authority that had been handed down from Jesus Christ himself to Peter and then Peter through succession on down to all of the succeeding popes. The Pope was held to be the vicar of Christ, Jesus' actual representative on the earth. And he was really the channel through whom the grace of God would flow down to the people. He was the Holy Father. And it was believed, listen, that he could speak for God. It's very important to understand. That, that if he spoke ex cathedra, those pronouncements were on par with the very words of God. And then there was the Mass. The Mass, that ceremony that took place at an altar at the front of every medieval church. And even the architecture in the church was designed in such a way that it would lead your eyes straight to the front and to that focal point. The Mass. And in the service of the Mass, the priest would hold the bread and the wine... And then he would speak Christ's words in Latin, which he might not have even known, and certainly the people didn't understand. He would say in Latin, this is my body, which in Latin is hoc est corpus mum, which in some people's minds, remember the people were often illiterate and, and unschooled, and, and it came to sound like hocus pocus. And to a superstitious people, that's kind of what it seemed was happening. Something magical was going on here. Some hocus-pocus, that's where that term originated. And it was thought and it was taught that in that moment, as the, the priest said those words, that the elements were transformed into the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that is called transubstantiation. Big word, which means the very essence of it would be transformed. So... When the people simply gazed upon the raised bread and the cup, it was deemed to be sufficient to cleanse away their sins as Christ, in effect, was being re-sacrificed before their very eyes with no blood, a bloodless sacrifice, but again, re-sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people again and again and again through the celebration of the Mass. Then there was the teaching of salvation through faith plus works. It's not that the Roman Catholic Church denied the importance of people receiving God's grace or putting their faith in Christ. It's that those terms kind of got redefined in such a way as to say they helped you become a more deserving person of salvation. God will not deny grace to those who do their very best. That was the slogan on the lips of most medieval theologians. But it raised some questions. How could you be sure you really had done your very best? How could you ever know you'd been good enough to merit forgiveness and salvation? 
And those unanswered questions left many people wallowing in fear and uncertainty when it came to their standing before God. And then there was the teaching of purgatory. Purgatory. You see, the church's official teaching was clear. Nobody, nobody would ever die righteous enough to have fully merited salvation. But no worries, no cause for great alarm because there was always purgatory, that place of chastisement where Christians would have the chance after dying to have all of their remaining sins slowly purged from them. Unless, of course, they died without repenting of a mortal sin they'd committed, such as murder, in which case they were going straight to hell. But this doctrine of purgatory was established by Pope Clement VI in 1343 by a papal bull, which was a decree. And this doctrine fit nicely into this system of merits and of absolution from sin. It's a concept you probably know that's foreign to the Bible, but as we'll see, it proved very useful. And then there was the cult of the saints. You need to understand that medieval Europe was filled with shrines to various saints. Saints who came to be seen more and more as mediators between the people and between Jesus, between them and Jesus, who was viewed as a holy and righteous and kind of a doomsday judge, someone you kind of shrink back from in fear. At first, the people were taught that they could approach Jesus only through his mother Mary because she was kinder and gentler, right? But then when Mary's status got elevated to Queen of Heaven, it was shifted to her mother Anne, Saint Anne. That's actually the saint that Martin Luther cried out to when that lightning bolt struck near him and he fell to the ground. Remember that? He was calling out to Saint Anne to help him. Then it got shifted to others who had been canonized as saints. You've heard of these names. Christopher, St. Patrick, St. Francis, St. Catherine, St. Agnes, Teresa, Benedict, many. Heaven was supposedly crammed with all of these saints, all of whom were very suitable mediators between the sinful people and the judge, Jesus. Heaven was thought to be full of saints and the earth was full of their relics. These were items, objects of the saints who, that were revered and it was thought they could somehow bestow some of the grace and merit of those saints. I'm talking about bones, teeth, ashes, articles of clothing, strands of hair and the like. Even pieces of Jesus' cross, it was thought. And even nails supposedly used to nail his hands and feet to the cross. Somebody came up to me last night and said, I've seen one of those supposed nails that nailed Jesus to the cross. These relics were on display everywhere, tens of thousands of them. Just like with the saints, these relics were not to be worshipped, just venerated. But you know, for people who were often illiterate and not well taught, and already subject to superstition, that distinction between worship and venerated was often lost on them. Too subtle. The saints more often were viewed like a pantheon of gods, and the relics kind of like... Rabbit's feet, talismans that possessed magical powers. Then there was the treasury of merits, as it was called. You say, well, what's that? Well, that's the idea that was put forward that, that some of those saints of yesteryear had been so good while they were here on the earth that they not only had earned enough merits to bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven themselves, but they had actually accumulated Surplus merits, extra credits, which were said to be kept and safeguarded in a kind of vault, a kind of heavenly vault, a treasury of merits. And who do you think possessed the keys to that treasure chest? The Pope. The Pope had the keys. And at his discretion, he could therefore gift some of those excess merits to any soul that he deemed worthy transferring them from an old saint's account, like St. Christopher, to your account. The belief, or excuse me, the benefit to the recipient would be less time spent in purgatory. So you could shave time off, uh, off of purgatory for you or for a loved one if you were able to somehow obtain some of these merits from the treasury of merits. So this kind of transactional religious system was put into place by Pope 
Sixtus IV threw a papal bull again in 1476. So again, prior to Martin Luther and all the reformers. Now this, how many of you are still with me? Half of you, okay. I'll try to get the other of you back. This treasury of merits would form the basis for something else that would give the reformers some heartburn, and that's indulgences. So here's what happened. Clever but unscrupulous people realized that all of this could be put together and crafted into a money-making scheme for the church. Now, indulgences were paper certificates that were, had printing on them, and they entitled the bearer to some of those merits, some of those surplus merits from the treasury, thus reducing time in purgatory, either for themselves, as I said, or for a loved one who'd already passed on, and by making these available at a cost, for a fee, you could buy these things. Guess what? A revenue stream was created for the church. Brilliant, right? Everybody wins. You shell out some money for one of those indulgences. Your heart is put at rest for dear old Aunt Bertha because for a few bucks you shaved a hundred years off of her time in purgatory. She, of course, is happy about that. And the Pope gets more money for his Vatican beautification project. It was a win-win-win proposition, except that it was also a scam cloaked in religious garb. And in the day of Martin Luther, there was a guy, and Pastor Jay referred to him, his name was Joanne Tetzel, and he was a door-to-door salesman. He was going door-to-door selling these indulgences in the villages near where Martin Luther lived and ministered. And when Martin heard that some of his church members, some of his parishioners had gone across the river and bought some of these things, you got to know it just turned his stomach. It appears that this, this right here is what pushed Martin over the edge. He believed this practice was corrupt to the core. Several of his 95 theses addressed this very issue. Now, up to this point, there were a smattering of people here and there who had challenged some of these things, but not to the point of being able to marshal tons of support. In the providence of God, it would be Martin Luther who would be able to do that. And as I said earlier, it wasn't Luther's intent to divide the church, but rather to reform it from within. He would have balked at any suggestion to separate and start some new kind of church. But you know what? <laughs> when he posted those theses, you know what he did? He, he, he let the tiger out of the cage, and he really didn't understand that. He was now on the loose. It could not be controlled. Or maybe to return to the fire analogy, Luther struck the original match, but the sparks blew far and wide and ended up igniting a Reformation wildfire that would change the landscape forever. Now, looking back from our vantage point, we can see that happened because there were conditions that already existed that were favorable to that. The winds of change that would carry those sparks were already blowing, and they had been for some time. So let's take note of some of the factors and conditions that led to the Reformation. First, a new era just seemed imminent. It just seemed to a number of people like things were changing. One historian wrote this, as the 15th century died and the 16th was born, the old world seemed to die at the hands of a new one. The mighty Byzantine Empire, the last remnant of Imperial Rome, had collapsed. Then Columbus discovered a new world in the Americas in what year? 1492. Then Copernicus turned the universe on its head with his heliocentrism. Do you know what that is? He's the one who first discovered the fact that the, the solar system doesn't revolve around the earth, that's geocentric, it revolves, revolves around the sun. And don't you think that was upsetting to people to realize that they weren't at the center of the universe? The sun was at the center of the universe. Now I say amen to that. And now here comes Luther, literally reforming Christianity as it had been known. All of the old foundations that once had seemed so solid and certain now were crumbling in this storm of change, making way for a new era in which things would be very different. So these tectonic plates were already shifting. Long-held notions about the world and the universe were being undermined by these new discoveries. And so Europe was ripe for reformation in many ways. Not only that, but the Roman Catholic Church had already been losing 
credibility for some time. They'd been experiencing really a century-long crisis of authority. Listen, listen to this. In 1378, the College of Cardinals in Rome needed to elect a new pope. And they were under a lot of pressure to elect an Italian, a Roman pope, because the last few guys had been Frenchmen. And so they did. They elected a, a Roman pope, but that new guy turned out to be a dud. He was very domineering. People didn't like him. There was a lot of backlash. There was even charges that the election was rigged and wasn't valid. And so a new pope was elected to replace him, and that was another French guy. Yes, France was the only one turning out good guys at that time. But guess what? The Roman pope wouldn't stand down. So now there's two popes who, of course, of course both uh, decided to excommunicate each other. So now in this empire, allegiance was divided, right? Well, this is my guy. Well, this is my guy. It's a desperate situation. So a council was called to meet and solve things. And you know what their solution was? To depose both of those popes and pick another new one. But neither existing pope would leave office. So now there were three popes. <laughs> this is referred to affectionately as the Great Schism. And this mess was only fixed after many years by yet another council, which met together, got two of the popes to resign, deposed the third one, and then elected yet another new pope. So the schism was over, but the obvious dilemma remained, right? As the people thought about this, it was like, where is the supreme authority in the church? We thought it was the pope, but now we have these councils telling us who our real pope is. We're not sure who to believe. So the whole episode raised a lot of questions and really damaged the credibility of the church. At the same time, there was a crisis of respectability because the city of Rome was falling into ruins. It was becoming a ghetto. Rome needed a makeover if she was ever going to recover her status as the crown jewel of Christendom. And so the popes saw this and they ordered massive renovation projects, hoping to recapture the glory days. And so Michelangelo was hired to adorn the Sistine Chapel. I don't think he made 10 bucks an hour. <laughs> a guy named Bramante was contracted to build St. Peter's Basilica. So the best artisans and craftsmen in the land were hired to come in and spruce things up in Rome. And of course, that was hideously expensive. This is when selling indulgences really caught on as a way to fund this whole project. But you know what? The people started grumbling. They're like, you know, the Pope seems more interested now these days in my money than he does in my soul. It bothered them. Added to that is the fact that really there was some sleaziness sliding into Rome and into the church. Just as an example, Pope Alexander VI basically bought his papacy. <laughs> he used his wealth to buy the votes in the College of Cardinals to become the Pope. He stole an election with money. Then, as Pope, he fathered multiple children by multiple mistresses and basically turned the Vatican into a kind of brothel where all kinds of unmentionable things were going on. He poisoned some of his cardinals. Not a, not a great guy. And he's the Pope, the Holy Father. His successor, Julius II, was not much of an improvement. And his successor, Leo X, was actually an agnostic. So think about that. This is the Pope, the Holy Father. Some vetting didn't happen or something, right? So you can see the church's image was taking a beating and many felt it's time to clean things up. Another factor leading up to the Reformation was taking place over in England through an Oxford priest named John Wycliffe. Have you heard of him? During that era when there were multiple popes, in England, Wycliffe began to, he saw that, and he began to publicly say, you know what, I believe that the Bible, not the Pope, should be recognized as the ultimate authority for our lives. He argued that the papacy was actually a mere human invention, that it was not sanctioned by God. How do you think that went over? He also rejected transubstantiation. He said, I don't believe that those elements get actually, literally transformed into the actual literal body and blood of Jesus. I don't see that in the Bible. So his talk upset all of England and really stirred up a hornet's nest. He, uh, Wycliffe wrote tracts. 
detailing out his views and his positions and began to spread those around. He commissioned and trained pastors to preach the gospel and start churches, and he translated the Latin Bible into English, which gave the common people the word of God in their own language. And you know what they started to do? They started to come together in groups and read and study the Bible in their own language, a new thing. And that was illegal. And so they did it secretly, underground. Now, Wycliffe died before the Council of Constance was convened, and that council ended up voting to condemn John Wycliffe as a heretic, but he was already dead. So you know what they did? They exhumed his body, (laughs) gathered his body parts, and then properly burned him like a heretic should be, just to exact justice. John Wycliffe. Then there was another John, John Huss, who was a bohemian from our modern-day Czech Republic. So what happened is some students from the Czech Republic were visiting Oxford and they heard some of Wycliffe's teachings and they brought those back to the University of Prague in modern-day Czech Republic. And those teachings were well-received by many people, including a high-up official at the university named Jean Hus. As a result of absorbing those teachings and And buying into them, Huss started to become critical of the church. He said the Pope does not have the right to grant these indulgences, and he thought that whole thing was a mockery. He questioned the whole idea of purgatory, and eventually John Huss was excommunicated, and then he too was executed as a heretic in 1415, so this is 100 years before Luther. But just before John Huss was burned at the stake... He is said to have uttered these words, You may roast this goose. Now the word hus in his language meant goose. He said, You may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. And almost exactly a hundred years later, Martin Luther would unleash his doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He would unleash that on the world And later on, in characteristic Luther fashion, he would declare without much humility, I'm the swan that Huss predicted a hundred years ago, and you will not silence my voice. That would be called a smattering of applause. (laughs) So Wycliffe was gone, Huss was gone, then there was the rise of the humanists, an Erasmus Greek translation of the New Testament. Now to us, the term humanist has a negative connotation, right? But back then it referred to a group of scholars who came together and they were convinced they could recover the glories of ancient Greece and Rome by reintroducing the classics, literature, art, culture from that era. Thus they would bring an end to what they were already calling the Dark Ages with its ignorance and barbarism. And So this humanist movement was threatening to the Roman Catholic Church in many ways, But listen, perhaps the most damaging way is that it gave rise to a renewed interest in the Greek language. What language was the New Testament written in? Greek. So that prompted a scholar named Erasmus, a very important figure in the Reformation, Erasmus, to produce a new Greek translation of the New Testament from the original Greek language sources. This more accurate version of the New Testament was laid aside the Latin Vulgate, the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church, and guess what? There were some differences. For example, in Matthew 4.17, the Vulgate in Latin had translated Jesus' words to a group of people, do penance, which the Catholic Church loved, right? But in Erasmus' translation, it said, repent, change your mind. And that was a more accurate translation. And so this began to raise some doubts in the minds of the people. If Rome had gotten some scripture translation wrong, what else might they have gotten wrong? Erasmus' Greek Bible would really be a ticking time bomb. Now these humanists liked to poke fun at some of the Roman Catholic theologians of that day because many of them seemed obsessed with trivia. Ever met anybody like that? They liked to debate questions like this one. Maybe you debated this when you were in college. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? (laughs) Could God have come as a cucumber instead of as a man? I mean, these are the kinds of questions these theologians would sit around and debate. And the humanists thought, well, that's ridiculous. The poster boy for those trivia-loving theologians was named Duns Scotus. That was his name, Duns Scotus. And so the humanists developed a kind of derogatory term for anybody who followed in that man's footsteps. They called him a 
duns or a dunce. If you've ever wondered where that term came from, now you know. Then there was the tech revolution. Not iPads and smartphones and the internet, but Gutenberg's printing press. An innovation of that day that it cannot be overstated how important that invention was to the spread of the Reformation cause. The printing press was invented in Germany around 1450. You got to remember, there were no Xerox machines back then. You couldn't just go in and, you know, punch in 50 and get 50 copies of something to give to people. Up to that point, everything had to be hand copied. So something getting a wide distribution was very, very rare, but now for the first time in history, knowledge could spread rapidly. And what do you think the first book was to be printed on that printing press? The Bible, that's right. Later on, Luther's 95 Theses would be turned into a printed pamphlet and given wide distribution within just a couple of months of him nailing those to the Wittenberg Chapel door. So this invention was huge for the spread of the Reformation wildfire. In fact, humanly speaking, it might not have happened without the printing press. Let's ask this. What were the main issues that were being contested by these reformers? What what got under their skin? What were they upset about? There were many, but let me mention several. First, that practice of selling indulgences, right? This is what pushed Martin Luther over the edge. And here's what upset him about it. It effectively detached forgiveness of sin from repentance of sin. To be absolved or forgiven of sin now, you didn't have to humble your heart and repent. All you had to do was shell out some cash. And you could, in effect, be forgiven. It was forgiveness for sale, cleansing for cash, purification for purchase, and it irked him to no end. He's like, this is not right, especially after he read the book of Romans. A second issue being contested was the authority, the supreme authority of the Pope. Now, the Reformation didn't start out as a referendum on the Pope's authority, but that's where it went. And, of course, the corruption in the papacy supplied plenty of tinder for that, right? And really, the matter of authority is a key question, even for today. Think about it. Who speaks for God? What is the ultimate source of truth about spiritual things? Whose word is to be trusted above all others? This matter of authority would become a key issue for the reformers, as would the issue of the mass, that ceremony that was thought to be a re-sacrificing of Christ. As more and more reformers had the word of God in their own language and they absorbed the writings of Paul, they would repudiate this notion of transubstantiation and the mass They believe to be a diminishing of the work of Jesus because Hebrews 7 says that Christ died once for all and does not need to be sacrificed again and again and again. And then, of course, they took issue with the Roman Catholic Church teaching of salvation by faith plus works. This is at the heart of the Reformation, as Pastor Jay noted last week. This question of how to be right with God and Luther wrestled mightily with this question in his early days. How can I enter into a state of grace before a holy God who is also my judge? How can a person be truly justified before God such that he can be assured of forgiveness of his sins or her sins and a place in heaven one day? Is salvation obtained by faith in Christ's work plus my own faithful obedience and observing of the seven sacraments and faithfulness to the church? Or is it by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's finished work alone? These became known as the solas of the Reformation. Sola, the Latin word for only. And there were five of them. Only Scripture. Only grace. Only faith. Only Christ. Only the glory of God. Maybe you've heard of those. And Pastor Brian will get more into those next weekend. But these were the... The the teachings that the reformers rallied around, it, it united them and they dug their heels in and I am so glad they did. Because what could be more important for human beings than getting this right? Salvation. How is it obtained? Now, those were main issues. Other issues came into view as well, but but these were the primary ones. Let's ask this who are the key figures in starting and spreading the Reformation? And I don't have time to give you all that I've got. (laughs) There were many men and women who caught the Reformation bug and aided the cause of spreading it, but 
any discussion of the Reformers, you always hear at least three names. Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin. These were the heavy hitters. These were the varsity players. These were the main instigators. Martin Luther, the German monk, who started out aiming for a career in law, but transitioned to becoming a monk after that near-miss lightning strike on that road one day that rattled him so. He became a theology professor at the German University of Wittenberg, where he would become a controversial figure. Now, Luther, you know, he wasn't the model of, what would you say? He wasn't a model in in some ways. (laughs) He was an earthy guy. His talk could be really earthy and brash and vulgar, um, you know, but he was a brilliant man and he was a fiery guy. He loved God and his heart was melted when he read the book of Romans and he said, I got I to gotta say something about this. God used him incredibly. He wrote extensively commentaries, sermons, theology books, a German translation of the Bible. He said some things later in his life that we wish he hadn't said about the Jews that got used by Nazis in 20th century Germany to kind of support their cause. He was a unique guy. (laughs) He and his wife ran a brewery out of their home. So they drank a lot of beer, talked a lot of theology, had a good time. This was Martin Luther. Then there was the French humanist Jean Calvin. He was French. Did you know that? Jean John Calvin. And uh, Calvin was a thin, gaunt man, had lots of physical issues all throughout throughout his life. He was more of a nerdy, intellectual, bookworm type of guy, shrunk back from the spotlight. He started out in the priesthood and then moved towards law, so he did the reverse of what Martin Luther did. Um, I don't have time to say much about him. I I will say that, that John Calvin didn't start out to start Calvinism. (laughs) That all happened after he died, when one of his students, Jacob Arminius, 20 years after Calvin's death, decided he didn't care for some of the teachings he heard at at the academy, and it all happened after Calvin died. Then there was the Swiss priest, Zwingli, who was a... He was a military guy. I mean, he was a big, beefy guy. He made Calvin look like, you know, nothing. Interestingly, Zwingli got a copy of Erasmus' Greek New Testament in 1516, and it changed his life as he read the Word of God in the original language and was converted to Jesus. So those were the big three. There are other names, Bullinger, Tyndale, Butzer, Farrell, Knox, John Knox, you heard of him, in Scotland. Over in England, there was Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Queen Elizabeth I. By the way, England's Reformation story reads like a soap opera. It was the era of the Tudors and Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and all that. But Elizabeth I really um, brought a lot of reforms to the table. It had, the story has all kinds of deception and intrigue in it. Then there were a number of radical reformers who took things way too far, as always happens with a movement, right? you got the radical fringe out there, usually these young bucks with a lot of passion, and they're just going crazy, and I think Luther would have said, no, that's not what I had in mind. And so there were times where the Reformation needed to be reformed. (laughs) And then following them were the Puritans, who were deeply influenced by the Reformation movement. And we have them to thank for our presence here today because you can trace it all back to the big three and really to one man, Martin Luther. By the way, we're going to host a screening of the brand new Luther movie that just came out a few months ago. It's called Luther, the Idea that Changed the World. We're going to host it here up in the loft on Saturday night, August 19th at 7.30. And so maybe we'll have popcorn, I don't know. But... um, If you'd like to participate in that, there's limited seating, obviously, in the loft, but I think you would benefit from seeing it. So there it is. Luther struck the original match. The flames continued burning really on down to this very day. And as the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs once wrote, the Reformation is that fire which all the world shall never be able to quench. 
Well, let's ask, what can we glean from this? I have three minutes remaining. What can modern-day followers of Jesus learn from the Reformation? And I'm convinced there's something in there for you and for me today. Time only permits me to mention several. First, I think there's a confirmation in the Reformation story, and it's this. Miss Vile was right. <laughs> this event, this man, Martin Luther, this really was one of the 100 most world-altering, history-shaking events that have happened. We should all be grateful. We follow here at New Life. We follow in this tradition. Then I think there's a rebuke in this story. All of us hold in our hands either a written copy or a, a digital copy of the Word of God, and it's in our language. And to us, it's, it's often no big deal, right? But you got to know that to that generation, to that era, to have the Word of God in your own language so that you can read it and you didn't need it interpreted by someone in the religious hierarchy, that was huge. And I wonder what the Reformers would think about our Bible reading habits today, about your Bible reading habits or mine. Beyond that, I wonder what Jesus Christ himself would think about that. And so I think there is a rebuke here. There's also an encouragement. Think about it. One courageous person with deep convictions can change the world. That happened if they become willing to take a risk and to pay a price. That's what Martin Luther did. He put everything on the line. Then I think there's a caution or two here. First caution, listen, don't go out and blast your Catholic friends for their false belief. That is not what should happen as a result of this sermon or this series. Most of the Catholic people I know have a deep hunger to learn the Word of God. Many I've talked to felt like they weren't encouraged to read the Bible for themselves growing up in catechism and all that. And, and they've, they've come to love the Bible. Remember, there's a difference between the authorized teachings of the Catholic Church and individual Catholic people. And many of us have Catholic friends. Many of you come from a Catholic background, or maybe you are Catholic here today, and we want you to know we love you, Jesus loves you. It's not our intent to condemn you in any way. Maybe the best thing you could do with your Catholic friend is to ask them to take up the Bible and read and study it for themselves. Or better yet, study it with you. Another caution from this story, I think, is this. Don't put your ultimate faith in a man. Don't make that mistake. The best human leaders will disappoint. Popes, pastors, parents, presidents. You know what? People are people, nothing more. People are just people. All people have feet of clay. All leaders potentially have the capacity to disappoint us. Give them the respect and the honor that's due their office, but resist the temptation to substitute them for God. Only God is God. There's a warning in this story, I think. Taking an unpopular stand by speaking truth to power, like Martin Luther did, can get you into trouble, and I think Jesus would say, so count the cost before you do that. Count the cost before you speak truth to power, because there could be consequences. God did not promise to shield his people from those consequences. He promised to be with us through them. And then I know there's a cause for joy in this story because the story of the Reformation tells us that Jesus Christ did all the heavy lifting so that we could be forgiven and declared righteous by God. You cannot possibly, listen, you cannot possibly add anything to the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is finished, he said. He did it. And by your efforts, by helping old ladies across the street, or even doing love works like we saw earlier, or coming to church, or putting money in the offering, or participating in the Lord's table, that, listen, that adds nothing to the work of Jesus for you. His atoning work was complete. His shed blood paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. It's not a matter of trying to be good enough for God, thank God. Because none of us ever could be. There's a great cause for joy in this story. And along with that comes a challenge, right? If you are one who has never yet 
place the full weight of your trust on the sacrifice of Jesus for you to be made right with God, I would ask, what are you waiting for? I mean, seriously, what are you waiting for? Jesus loves you. He came, he lived, he died for you. And you can be saved by putting your full trust in Christ Jesus. And be born again. And know that you know that you know that you know that you've been forgiven and that you're on your way to an eternal heaven with him. And with his family, which is a beautiful thing. Well, I close with the famous writing, not of Martin Luther, not of Calvin or Zwingli, but of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 2. Listen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's how someone becomes saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God has been good to us. Let's worship Him together. Let's declare our faith in Christ alone.